This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. I'm also be joined by Kara Marciscano, who's an associate on our research team. Please note, Kara and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor at Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a great show today. We'll be joined by Randy Watts of O'Neill Global Advisors, joining us for the to talk about his background, O'Neill, and then actually a brand new ETF launched this week. Um, But before we get to Randy and this great conversation, Professor, uh, checking in on on your pulse, focused on inflation. We got some new inflation data. What are you you thinking? Well, you know, what's interesting, it's the first inflation data that we've actually gotten in months that was at, or or even a time, tiny bit below expectations, uh, really pretty much on the level. The PCE deflator, uh, now that is the official price index that the Fed watches, but uh, it's uh, for the month of May, and it's rarely a surprise because it's constructed from the producer price index and the consumer price index, which came out two weeks ago. So in a way, it's, it's nothing that's uh, new news. Uh, I, I think that uh, I, I myself am waiting for uh, July 13th when the new CPI comes out, uh, and then when the following day the PPI comes out. I mean, those two are going to be much more important to judge whether the uh, you know the inflation trends are temporary, as Jay Powell hopes, or uh, for far more persistent, uh, as I uh, as I believe. As, as, as you think about how all these things are going to play out between, I mean, we've been consistent on your calls for higher inflation. It, it's going to be, this is not a, you know, a temporary phenomena. Outline these sort of tremors, you think, you know, in terms of what, how that plays through across, you know, the, your outlook for stocks and how that, that, that plays through. Right. Well, you know, as, as, as you know, and we talked about it last week and on last week when I was on CNBC, um, um, uh, by the way, I'm going to be on again at today at, at uh, just after four o'clock. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I said it's a uh, inflation tremor, um, a te- t- uh, uh, a taper tremor, and it was not going to stop the bull market. And again, the bull market S and P is at an all time high, um, and. Uh, Stocks are real assets, and stocks are going to continue to do well. They, as data comes in that inflation is more permanent and the Fed becomes more aggressive, you will get these tremors. But people realize, yeah, but where am I supposed to go? I want to be in real assets. And so as a result, the money will continue flowing, even though everyone will be talking about, oh, my goodness, uh, you know, the Fed is eventually going to raise, uh, is going to raise rates. I think we should also mention, by the way, the – uh, the the skinny deal, if you want to call it that, that Biden uh, and the bipartisan uh, congressional committee came to on infrastructure, um, which is what I predicted. I predict that 
uh, even though there's opposition, uh, and, and Pelosi crazily says she's not going to do that until she, she's not going to do the skinny until the reconciliation bill. I think I think they're going to do this this skinny and then go in big on the reconciliation bill at the end of the year. That's when we're going to see those tax increases. I mean, this is uh, the the scenario that I've been predicting for four months, um, and I, I see absolutely no not, nothing that I see as is derailing that. Um, although there is a lot of opposition, both on the left and even among conservative Republicans, so uh, but I do believe that this this bill will come through. It's relatively small, certainly less than a trillion dollars. The bigger part will come in the reconciliation bill. Now, again, Biden's not going to get everything he wants. That's going to be pared down, but it is going to at that point going to be accompanied by. By a, a, a tax increase, uh, we do see, by the way, uh, a little bit of a uh, actually the yields uh, on the ten-year, which have come all the way down, actually slightly below 140 at one point. Actually, it's now above 150, now about 153. Uh, so a little bit of a, a firming up of those yields, I think, on this infrastructure bill. I should also say that. Um, uh, we, we're not getting good news on the money supply. The money supply is still increasing at a 125 uh, to 13% uh, rate. Uh, just check the data that uh, came in for um, uh, the last month, and uh, we have not been slowing it down. We had a big surge, but since then it's been increasing at as a, a double-digit rates. We need to get control of that. The Fed has to has to you know become serious i think on that uh, liquidity that's coming down the road but uh, i'm not i'm not backing down on on the inflation i think again it's going to hurt the fixed income the most long term um and money will still move into stocks although there will be these tremors as the fed moves closer and closer first to the the actual tapering the scheduling of the tapering and then finally the the move upward in rates let me bring in Randy for a second. I, I know, Randy, um, you've been following the professor's work for some time. We're going to have a deep conversation with you throughout the rest of the program. But any quick comments on what you heard from the professor to start the show or any other follow-ups you'd love to, to have with him? Well, well, first off, uh, Professor, in the honor, in, in honor of Sports uh, Talk Radio, uh, a longtime listener, first-time caller, I've read your work for years, including even back when I took the CFA. So I'm really happy to be able to finally speak with you. Thank you. Uh, my biggest question is really the 10-year yields that you touched on a second ago. Uh, while I understand accounting for term premium, et cetera, real rates in the U.S. are negative. And I'm curious on two things. One, how long you think that will continue? And then second, how much of that do you think is due to outside overseas buying of the bond and also the Fed's continuing expansion of its balance sheet? Uh, I'm just interested in where you think those rates are going and how much those two factors are distorting them right now. Well, we, we, we're in a 20-year secular decline of interest rates, and it's not just the inflation because the real rate itself has been in a secular decline um, for many reasons. Uh, have to do with the aging of the population, um, slower economic growth, although this year is, is going to be a boom because of the stimulus, but uh, the broad outlines are, are slower around the world. Um, more risk aversion on the part of uh, a lot of uh, retire. You know, a lot of the wealth is being held by older and older people 
who want the bonds. Corporations are defeasing their uh, pension liabilities with bonds, even, you know, at a rapid rate, getting out of stocks because the penalties for being underfunded are so great. Of course, we, 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 don't, we, we only have legacy um, uh, d- defined benefit plans, but they still are, are big. Uh, there are some flows going abroad, but real rates are negative abroad. I mean, real rates are negative uh, everywhere in the developed world, and I don't believe that's going to end. I think we're going to have I mean, negative real rates, um, even as as the Fed starts raising their short-term uh, rates, I think that the long-term real rates will remain negative. Long-term nominal rates will have to rise somewhat because the inflation is eroding their value much more than the TIPS values. But I think we are in a world where we can expect negative after inflation rates on the sovereign debt and, and treasury instruments. Well, that's to, to go back to what you said at the top, that's actually a very bullish outlook for stocks. To use the expression, Tina, there is no alternative. If you're correct about that and real rates stay negative, then I do think it continues to, infor- to force investors into the stock market. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, what I said, and, and it's exactly – as I've been saying, where where are you going to go? You want to go in bonds? I mean, as I say, that's that's worse. Uh, and inflation protected bonds are negative, uh, and I don't see really them coming, uh, you know, up up to anything that's positive or, or anything meaningful. Um, and and as I often point out, historically, when 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 tips were first floated in 1997, so we now have a almost 25 year history. Uh, they were three and a half percent, and in 2000 went to almost four and a half percent on the 10-year tips. I mean, uh, the, which is quite extraordinary that you could actually get four and a half percent after inflation on Treasury-guaranteed instruments. Uh, actually, that was actually a greater prediction on real returns than from the stock market at that time. Well, today, just to show you the world of difference, even though stock valuations are higher than average. Um, I'm still predicting four and a half to five percent real return on stocks, whereas we've just mentioned we have negative real returns on bonds. So, I mean, the, 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 again, the gap between uh, any sort of fixed income inflation or not, and the equity market is is still enormous, and still will stimulate flows. I, I read about flows into real estate. Well, real estate have had their gains. I mean, you know, twenty percent gain basically in real estate prices. Some areas higher. Uh, you know, I predict a cumulative 20% rise in inflation um, from the beginning of the pandemic to, to the next two, three, four years. And it may be more if we don't get the money supply growth under control. So in a way, in many ways, the commodity market has already jumped ahead and the housing market to anticipate uh, this inflation. It's just a matter of flowing through the official statistics of the CPI, et cetera, which is a much slower process uh, that we will see that uh, inflation unfold. Well, Professor, thanks so much for the, the great commentary to start the show. Have a great, uh, great weekend. Thank you. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, remember, the employment report is, is next Friday. Very good. good big. Always, always get that good commentary. Thank you. We're going to turn to uh, a focused conversation with Randy Watts, who's the Chief Investment Officer for Neo Global Advisors, OGA. Uh, OGA has operations U.S., China, India. They manage quantitatively focused investment funds using proprietary O'Neill methodologies, databases, long history. Randy, thank you for joining us today on Behind the Markets for the, for the show. 
great, Jeremy. Great, great to be here, and thanks for the invitation. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a new ETF that we launched, uh, the Growth and Momentum Strategy, tied to a O'Neill Index. But before we get into that, let's go. F- tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to O'Neill, and, and let's get into some of the O'Neill background for people who aren't familiar with with your firm. Sure. So I've actually been in the investment industry for quite a while. I'm I'm, I'm 52. I've been in the industry now for 31 years. Uh, I, I'm a graduate of the University of Virginia. And congratulations, obviously, on the lacrosse team's uh, NCAA title. Uh, and I started right out of college as an analyst on Wall Street, working at that time for a, for a company called Freedom Capital. Uh, I then moved to a company called Westfield Capital, which is a uh, equity manager in Boston that focuses on growth stocks. I uh, was there for about a decade. Uh, then spent time inside the Bank of New York organization where I was there for 13 years. I managed a small and mid-cap a focused product that had about four billion in assets and a lot of uh, clients that you would you would recognize by by name, people like like State of Illinois, State of Pennsylvania. Um, and then after that, I, I joined O'Neill. I've been here for four years. Previously, I was the uh, chief investment strategist for the firm and the director of research. I've shifted over about a year ago to be the chief investment officer of our new external money management organization. Uh, one thing that's funny about the O'Neill organization is we've been involved with equity investing really since the 60s, and we have a long legacy, which we can we can talk about in a minute, but we did not really focus on managing assets for external clients, and we are now sort of taking that initiative and moving in that direction. Yeah, tell us about, so Bill O'Neill was really one of the original growth investors, uh, but maybe you could tell us, how, tell us a little bit about Bill and all the different um how he got started, what, what his focus was, and, and, and then sort of the, the legacy that got to where you are today with O'Neill Global Advisors. Sure. So, so Bill is one of the great investment success stories in, in modern American history. Uh, he's in the top 20 uh, investors listed in, in Investopedia. Uh, he started his career as a stockbroker back in the late 50s with Hayden Stone and Company. And from the get-go, he was, he was interested in, in really two things. He was interested on why stocks went up and what you could glean from price and volume information, so what people would call technical analysis. And early in his career, he he didn't have a lot of success picking stocks. So he said to himself, I'm going to go go back and I'm going to write down all the characteristics of all the stocks that have been big winners over the last few years. And what he really did is he developed a, a prototype list for what he called model book stocks. And these are stocks that did 10 times type returns over, over, their, over their major runs. And he noticed that they had really two components. They had a fundamental component that dealt with strong sales growth, strong earnings growth, good margins. And they tended to either be in, in new industries like say the software or the semiconductor industry, or they tended to have a very innovative new product and service that could revolutionize an existing industry. He combined that with noticing what the stocks did in a price and volume pattern before they had their big moves. And he noticed oftentimes these stocks either had long consolidation periods or they had something we call a breakout, which is where a stock moves up a great deal in price on a big spike in volume. And those were oftentimes triggers for the move the stock was about to have. He 
is a is a well-known author. He he wrote a book called uh, How to Make Money in Stocks. It sold over four million copies worldwide. That was published in 1988. He also was was the founder and publisher for many years of Investors Business Daily. Uh, though I should note that uh, uh, we've 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 uh, sold that company to the Wall Street Journal and News Corp uh, recently. Uh, but that was uh, obviously a paper that, and still is, that is really geared towards helping the retail investor invest in the stock market. B- Bill always believed one of the greatest paths to wealth was through the investment world in, in stocks, and he wanted to, he wants to do everything he can to really help the individual investor uh, make the market more accessible and to help show what the patterns are that that winning stocks have. I think what's interesting about Bill is. If you really look at what he was doing, in a, in a way, he was an early quantitative investor in that he assigned rankings, both technical and fundamental, to companies, and he then categorized them, and he then invested in the stocks with the best scores. Now, interestingly, initially, he was doing that in his mind, but over time, that became more and more computerized. He was one of the early individual purchasers, actually, of, a, of an IBM mainframe. And what that's led to at at the O'Neill Parent Company is we have a very proprietary database with all of our ratings and rankings, both fundamental and technical, uh, going back 50 years on 70,000 stocks worldwide, because we've noticed many of the patterns and traits of winning stocks in the U.S. market are also true internationally in foreign markets. So, so there's the book on on picking the winning stocks. I, I think one of the terms you hear a lot from the O'Neill world is the CanSlim methodology. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? You talked about the fundamentals and the technicals. Is is CanSlim something you want to go into some details on? Sure. So, what we try to do really is is break down it into into two, into two things. We're looking for for sales growth, earnings growth, strong margins some kind of an innovative product, plus we want to see a stock that is doing better than the overall market in terms of its relative strength, is in an industry group that is leading the market and has positive price momentum. So stocks that go to have very large runs are not usually stocks that are greatly underperforming the market and in, and in industry groups or sectors that are really lagging. And in general, a lot of the big winners in the market over the last, you know, 30, 40 years have really come from either the consumer space, the healthcare space, or, or the technology space. They, they come from other areas as well sometimes, but normally they're in the parts of the economy that are really focused on, on innovation and have secular tailwinds that are leading, leading to growth. Also, it should note that when stocks have these large moves, they usually are already growing at a good clip and are already profitable. Now, that's not true in some areas like biotechnology, but in general, a lot of the big stocks and the big winners are companies that already have good revenue growth and already have good earnings growth. I think one of the things I've learned from Bill over the years is really that stocks that go to have big runs are companies that are already starting to perform well. So we really try to focus at O'Neill on what's happening in the market right now and take our clues from where the market strength is as opposed to try to guess where the market strength is going to be in the future. 
If you just listen to the signals the market is giving you, you can oftentimes make very, very good investments instead of trying to predict what is, what is going to occur. We're talking with Randy Watts of O'Neill Global Advisors uh, about the methodology of O'Neill, how they're focused on, on different things. Randy, you, you talked about O'Neill's looking for 10 times these big winners. Uh, you want to talk through some of the research on, on the long term? There's been some studies saying that the, the real returns of the market have been driven by these big winners over time. Yeah, there's, there's a really interesting st study out of uh, Arizona State University and what it looks at is it looks at stock market returns greater than T-bills, which is essentially inflation. And what they found is that the majority of the stock market's gains above inflation come from about 4% of stocks. So 96% of stocks either beat inflation by a little bit or lag inflation by a little bit. And the big, big gains that drive the value of the market are from these 4% that are really these kind of 10 times stocks. And what, what that means is, is a couple of things. It means that if you miss the Googles and the Amazons and, and the Facebooks and the Walmarts and the Home Depots of the world, it's very, very hard to outperform the market. And that really means that investors should either be buying things like index funds to just get the general market return, or they really want to focus on investments which are focused on those major big winning stocks, that just building a portfolio of kind of average stocks is, is not going to lead to gains that are greatly above uh, inflation. And so, we, you know, we've really focused at O'Neill on trying to find those stocks that we think are the emerging and long-term winners that can really build wealth and really increase their the size of their enterprises and the size of their market caps. Now, when I think about you know the research I did with Professor Siegel on on some of his work uh, on gross stocks, you know I think some of the concerns come down to do people pay too much for growth? You have all the academics who tend to focus on the quote unquote value factor, and then sort of growth just is like the opposite in the expensive side of the world. How do you where where do you you know clearly you guys are talking a lot about the growth in the technicals. How do you think about where the, the academics who focus on value go wrong what the, and, how, and how you try to incorporate those kind of issues into, into how you guys think about the market? I would say, I would say Jeremy, there's, there's, there's sort of two, two answers there. The first answer is if you actually look at when these, these stocks go on and have these big, big runs, where the stocks start in terms of valuation and where they end on terms of valuation, most of the big winning stocks – actually start their major, major moves at a premium to the market. So if you go back and think about the early years at Microsoft or the early years at Cisco, you know, those were not cheap stocks. They had a premium to the market back then. So the best stocks usually do not sell at a big discount to the, to the market. They, they start their moves expensive and they actually get more expensive. So valuation has actually not been a good predictor of growth stock performance. So that's the, that's the first statement. The second statement is though we do spend a lot of time looking at the technicals, so again, the price volume action stocks, and we look at their patterns, and we look at where they are relative to their moving averages, et cetera. And there are times where stocks clearly become overly extended on a technical basis. And when that occurs, 
the odds are that the stock is more likely to revert or decline in price than it is to keep going. So we always want to be cognizant of when something looks like it's too technically overbought and extended, and we either want to either want to move out of that or we want to trim it trim it back. We also spend a lot of time looking at long-term trends and trend lines because we want to be in those stocks again that we think are going to continue to outperform the market, have done it, and where the relative strength of the market is. You know, relative strength is a very important criteria for investors. Uh, you, you may think you understand everything about the stock market, but you can be you can sit in an underperforming low relative strength group for a long time, and the opportunity at cost of that can be very great for your portfolio. I, I want to get into a lot more details through the second half of the show. We're definitely going to get into details on some of the factors we look at specifically uh, in, in your new O'Neill growth, growth and momentum index. But just sort of one other macro comment here is, as you think about like the last decade, last 15 years really, has been this growth market. Uh, you've got the, the concentration at the top. A lot of these major indexes, the FANG stocks uh, have been winners for a long time. Any, any general commentary on, 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 on the growth winners so far, what you've seen? Any other big picture trends as you think about the, the macro setup we have here? You know, it's funny. People see things occurring in the market, and they and they make generalizations that that oftentimes aren't accurate. And pre-COVID, you know, one of the generalizations was, oh, you know, these large cap stocks are are ridiculous, and they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. But if you looked at that group, and I did a report on this uh, back back when I was doing the running the research department, if you look at the performance, the fundamental performance of those large stocks that led the market, they had better revenue growth, they had better earnings, they had better margin structures, and they had better returns than the small cap stocks in the U.S., and they were much better than the large cap stocks of other foreign markets, with the exception of like one or two emerging markets. So actually, this mega cap strength has been logical in the sense that these companies have been growing very rapidly generating a ton of earnings and cash to the balance sheet. So it was actually, you know, very rational. And also, some of these mega cap tech stocks have economic moats, the likes of which are, are rare to see in the market. So I, I kind of understand why they're, why they're performing the way they do. I continue to think the strength in the economy over the intermediate term, and, and we're in a little bit of a, a cyclical value market right now, as the economy gets gets its footing back after COVID, and we have all this fiscal stimulus from the government flow through, but long term, so that's the three to five year time frame. I continue to believe the strength of the market in the U.S. economy is where we are the most innovative, and for me, that's really healthcare, uh, technology, and certain areas of consumer discretionary. In particular, healthcare, I think, is going to have a huge amount of opportunity over the next several years. We're starting to get through, through, through some breakthroughs in the, in the science. Uh, clearly, the fact that Pfizer and Moderna were able to put together these, these uh, mRNA vaccines in a relatively short period of time is impressive, and that technology may be able to be used for other disease states. We had biogenesis approved for an Alzheimer's drug. I think it was the first Alzheimer's drug in 17 years, and you saw how that stock reacted. So I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in, in, in the cloud side and the software side, but particularly in the healthcare world over the next next several years. Uh, and so that's an area I think in, investors should focus on. I think eventually the 
value cyclical trade, which is still, I think, kind of underway right now, eventually that is going to return to more of a normal trend line. And long term, it'll be the growth sectors and the innovation sectors of the economy that, that really lead. This has been great, a great introduction to what we're going to talk about much more in detail in the second half. How do you put all your factors you focus on into a new index? Uh, we're going to talk a lot in depth about that. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. We have some breaking news this week that Wisdom Tree launched a growth and momentum ETF tied to an O'Neill index. So this was exciting to get you on the show to talk about the, the brand new launch. Uh, and, you know, it, it's sort of interesting. You gave the background of the O'Neill team, how you created these growth indexes. Maybe as, as you think about, you know, your own business transitioning to uh, asset management and, and this new index, maybe talk a little bit about how you thought about creating an index to reflect the themes of, of growth and momentum that you talked about to, to start the show. I think, uh, thanks, Jeremy. I think when we thought about the index, what we really wanted was was two things. The first is we wanted exposure to those innovative companies that have products and services that can can change industries and can grow very rapidly in the in the areas of the economy like healthcare, tech, just consumer discretionary. But oftentimes those can be very volatile areas, and the stocks can get extended and then have very sharp and extreme drawdowns. And over time, that can be a pretty bumpy ride for investors. So what we really wanted to focus on was how can we develop an index that invested in those kind of companies and stocks, but dampened down some of that volatility. And the way we really did that with the creation of the O'Neill Growth Index was by using four factors. The first factor is what we call the data graph ranking. Any of your listeners who have seen an IBD chart or an O'Neill chart knows what a data graph is. It shows the price and volume action of the stock, as well as has a lot of fundamental data on it. <clears throat> the data graph, and with a data graph ranking, we rank all the stocks out there, 70,000 of them, from 1 to 99, with 99 being the best. And that data graph ranking reflects the earnings growth, the revenue growth, the margin structure, et cetera, of the company. So obviously, again, higher number there is, is better. And we focused on really the top 20% or so of stocks in the market that had high data graph rankings. So these are really stocks that are, that are leaders in their industries and in the overall economy. <clears throat> we then combined that with three technical factors. A technical factor we called hotness, which really reflects the speculative trading intensity in a stock. Volatility, which measures the one-year uh, standard deviation of returns for a stock. And then most importantly, I think, is pullback. Pullback is a factor that looks at stocks that are in long-term uptrends, but have had a recent short-term move back. So, you know, a good example of a, of a stock like that, you know, might be a stock like, like Nike, which had, had moved back and been going through a consolidation period they reported great numbers last night, and now that stock is up, you know, over 10% today and kind of breaking out on volume. So what we're really trying to do are buy those long-term winning stocks that are in uptrends but have pulled back a little bit back more towards the trend line. Also, this prevents us from having in the index companies that are overly extended 
because a lot of times when these high growth stocks correct, they'll correct 20, 30, 40, 50%. So obviously a company that's down 50%, you got to find another company that's going to be up 100 to get your money back. So we've really tried to, to, to avoid companies that are overly extended. Yeah, it's sort of interesting, the combination of factors between, you know, you've got the proprietary data graph rating and then uh, and then the pullback, which gives you the long term winners. Uh, and then this this, you know, I, I've referred to the hotness factors like this crowding factor trying to avoid uh, things that are too hot, you know, that, you know, once it gets too hot, that might be be this additional risk. Is, is that really the way to think about that? That is absolutely hotness. It, it, it's an excellent way to say it, Jeremy, is crowding. And when everybody's already on one side of the boat, oftentimes you don't want to be on that side. You want to be moving away from that because the stock is extended and overbought. So we're trying to avoid those, and we're trying to focus on companies that have got you know, great fundamentals where, where uh, something is occurring that we think can, can be innovative for quite a period of time. Uh, and and those, are, those are the, the names we're focused on. I know Kara's been here patient, waiting to jump in. Kara, do you want to come in here on, on, on hotness here? Yeah, so I think, you know, O'Neill is a super interesting firm. You have this longstanding legacy with William O'Neill and, the, you know, the composite ranking on both technicals and fundamentals, but at the same time, you know, very forward thinking. And I know O'Neill thinks of itself as like a, a financial research and development lab more than, you know, necessarily an investment advisor. And to me, if a factor like hotness makes me think of this meme stock phenomenon we have been experiencing lately with run-ups in stocks like GameStop and, and the like. So my question is, is hotness a, a recent factor O'Neill has worked on? And if not, how does O'Neill think about you know, building out a factor platform? And how, and how does the R&D process at O'Neill sort of respond to changes in the market real time? Sure. So uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, hotness is a factor we've been working on for about six years. Uh, you know, in terms of the meme stock phenomena, uh, I, I do want to say that I'm always on the side of the individual investor. So, you know, if individual investors want to buy those stocks, they should be able to buy and sell what, what they want to buy and sell. But a lot of those stocks would not pass our screen because there is a fundamental component as well, which is that data graph ranking. And a lot of those meme stops don't have the sales earn and earnings growth we need to see, nor the margin structure that makes it really attractive you know, for us. Um, we, we have been working on quantitative investing, as I said, for, for quite some time. We have developed 250 what I would call factor families, and those can be both technical and fundamental in nature. A factor family might have to do with, could be something fundamental like earnings growth, or it could be something technical like a gap up. And then underneath those 250 factor families, we have about 10,000 individual factors. So again, that could be an example of a gap up over 5% in price with a 15% or more increase in daily volume. Or it could be a breakdown through a 200-day moving average average on X volume or something like that. And we're developing these factors all the time. We've got about 60 people in the, uh, in the quantitative research group right now, globally. We've got a team in LA, a team in China, and a team in India. And we continue to believe, you know, 
a lot of the kind of style we have in terms of ranking things fundamentally and technically really suits quantitative investing. Uh, and we're developing new factors all the time. Uh, what's especially important with factor analysis is understanding that the importance of a factor can rise and fall over time. So we spent a lot of time on what we call walk-forward optimization to make sure the factors we're using are still as relevant today as when they were first researched and developed. Randy, so we talked about the, the fund. We sort of called it the Growth and Momentum Fund. You have it called the O'Neill Growth Index. When you think about this as, as where it fits in portfolios for people, is this more of a growth fund, more of a momentum fund, equal combination of the two? How do you think about it? I think it is a mid and large cap growth fund. Right now, about 30% of the fund is large cap, about 70% is mid cap. I should say index, not fund. Uh, about 30% of the index is large cap, about 70% is, is, is mid cap. It's comprised of 70 stocks. It's definitely focused on growth. I would say what's most interesting about it, though, is that it follows where the relative strength in the market is. And so that can lead to very different sector weightings than you get from the S&P and from the NASDAQ. So, for example, right now, a third of the index is in the consumer discretionary space, which is a very hot space. The consumer has been at home for a year. They've built up over a trillion dollars of excess savings. People want to get out. They want to buy a new pair of shoes. They want to buy a new shirt. They want to go out to have dinner. They want to go see a movie. And so spending is really ramping up there. And I think that's going to be a great place to invest the rest of the year. So we're about 33% in consumer discretionary. That compares to the S&P at more like 12. So the weightings of the sectors are really driven by both relative strength and where fundamental mental growth is. I think this is a good component for investors if they're looking for an index that is mid to large growth oriented. I should mention it's all U.S. stocks. There's no foreign stocks in the index. It's all, it's all U.S. stocks. And they're looking for something that is going to be a little bit more adaptable and follow the strength in the market more than the static indexes are. The index rebalances monthly. So we're making sure that when there is a change in relative strength, we go ahead and, and follow it. I should mention also about 22% of the index is tech. That's a big weighting, but that compares to 27 for the S&P and about 47% for the NASDAQ. So I actually think the index is more diversified than some of the other large cap indices right, right now. Here, let me come to you for a second. Uh, you know, you, we've, you've done a little bit of work on what some of the other momentum strategies look like. Uh, and there's really a lot of uh, sort of interesting commentary. Um, Randy talked about the index rebalancing monthly, which is, which is very consistent with the academic research on momentum strategies. But that's not how most momentum ETFs are constructed. You want to sort of talk a little bit about what you see across the, across the industry? Yeah, absolutely. So as Randy mentioned, you know, we're 30% consumer discretionary. So that that's just a an anecdote that shows that with a monthly rebalance, you can sort of pivot towards industry with strength more frequently. So the monthly reset, refresh for, for the growth and momentum fund, WGROW, is a key point of, of differentiation from what we see as some of the largest momentum ETFs out there today. They're rebalancing at most quarterly, um, some as infrequently as semi-annually. 
And we think this is a huge, huge differentiation point. You can respond quickly to changes in the market and O'Neill's use of their proprietary technical factors um, helps avoid some of those stocks that are extended, as Randy mentioned, um, and then pivot from sectors that are in a downtrend and pivot towards those that are are showing technical sides of signs of future leadership. Randy, we started talking about you know at the first half you you sort of you you uh, gave the the fangs or the the mega caps a, a sort of endorsement that's okay. Well, I mean now they've been concentrated in some of the major growth indexes. Do you think, uh, I mean, you went for an equal weighted index. Uh, how do you think about that differentiation between sort of more of like a, it's not exactly equal weighted, sort of factor weighted, but any any talk about the concentration in the fangs in, in traditional NASDAQ and growth indexes versus a, an equal weighted framework? Well, historically, where you get the best performance oftentimes are stocks that are kind of mid cap or large cap, but on the lower end not in the mega caps. Now, I don't want to discount what I said earlier in that a lot of the mega caps are doing well. We just think we're going to be able to find some stocks that are growing faster in that kind of mid mid cap or, or large cap space, but not mega cap. So, you know, an example would be a company like, like Snap Incorporated, which owns Snapchat, that's in the index. That's got an $84 billion cap, so not a, not a, not a trillion dollar cap. They're growing very rapidly. They're up to 500 million monthly active users. Wall Street estimates for this year are for 50% revenue growth. They're going to have positive earnings versus a loss last year. And they're competing on a variety of fronts. Their spotlight product is doing very well competitively with TikTok. And we think they've got a lot more upside in ARPU, so that's average revenue per user, versus someone like Facebook. That. That doesn't mean we're negative on Facebook. It just means we think someone like Snap can grow faster. So I think that's really the focus, which is, you know, what's the next Facebook? What's the next Apple? Can we find those in this index and, and put those into play? Doesn't mean a stock like Apple isn't going to be a good performer over the next year. We're just wondering if we can't find something that grows a little bit faster. We're talking with Randy Watch, who's the Chief Investment Officer, O'Neill Global Advisor. We have Karamar Siscano, who's an associate on my research team about this sort of really interesting new index, the O'Neill Growth Index, and, and all the different characteristics. So, Snap, very interesting story there. Uh, is there any other stocks that you thought were, were interesting on some of your factors that, that make a good example, or any, any other individual stories that, that you thought were, were interesting? I think one that's very topical is, is Decker's Outdoors. They've got about a $10 billion market cap. This is kind of on the back of the Nike news overnight that we discussed earlier. They're focused on luxury footwear and, and sandals. Uh, their biggest brand is, is Ugg. They make those, those kind of fuzzy boots. That's about 67% of the company. And we think they're going to be able to grow their revenues this year about 20, 20%. Uh, their earnings are, are growing as well, and, and the stocks trades about 24 times. So that's another example of that kind of mid-cap stock that's growing into a larger cap stock that's got a very, very good sales growth rate and looks very good to us technically uh, that, that the index is kind of trying to focus on. So again, it wasn't Facebook. It was Snap. It's not Nike. It's, though I wish it was Nike today. It's, it, you know, it's Decker's. So that kind, of, that kind of stock that we think is a little bit less exploited in the marketplace than some of these mega cap names. Kara, any any places you want to go in, in, in questioning here? I just wanted to touch on maybe 
the the aggregate fundamentals of of the fund. So the combination of the four factors that are involved in the the growth index methodology actually make W growth stack up really really nicely on a multitude of factors. So the the data graph rating, which is sort of pivoting the the index and the fund towards higher fundamentally strong names and high growth names. I, I, as we hear Randy talk about out, about stocks, we keep hearing that they're showing strong revenue growth, strong EPS growth. So if we look at um, you know those metrics for for the index versus things like the NASDAQ 100 index, the Russell 1000 index, they have very, very similar 20 in the 20% range revenue growth profile. Um, and then you know, in the twenty, the the mid twenties to low thirty EPS growth range, and then what's really nice is we're getting similar margin and growth profiles with W Grow, but at a a significantly cheaper valuation. So if we look at the Nasdaq 100 index on price to sales, it's valued at 5.7 times, and W Grow is valued at 3.3 times. So you know, more than than two turns below the NASDAQ 100 index for a similar growth pro- profile, I think is a really nice story there. And it, it's the same same for um, forward-looking PE. Of course, it's it's not only the trailing earnings that, that matter, but also looking ahead, which companies are, are expected to continue to grow. The NASDAQ 100 trades at 29 times. W grows at 25 times. Again, similar growth profile, cheaper valuation. So even though valuation isn't actually, you know, part of the four factors, it does end up stacking up very nicely against some of those benchmarks. And I think, Randy, yeah. that that could be attributable to that pullback factor that you mentioned. Is that the correct way to think about it? I think it's both the pullback factor and I also think it's relative strength. The average stock in the O'Neill Growth Index and WGRO has a relative strength of 80%, which means it's beating 80% of the stocks in the market. It's in the top 20% of the market. That compares to the NASDAQ 100 of about 50 and the S&P about 59. So it definitely is more focused on taking its signals from the market, what is working, and where the growth is. And I think that's important because large sectors can move in and out of favor all the time. Uh, I've been in, uh, I don't know this for better or for worse, I've been in the industry long enough that I remember the 2000 to 2003 period very clearly. And if you remember that period, a lot of those mega cap tech stocks underperformed for years and years after the tech bubble. And so I don't think you want to be stuck in an index that doesn't adapt to where the strength in the market is, because if, if 47% of the NASDAQ 100 is tech and tech rotates out of favor for a few years, you could be stuck in an index that really lags uh, relative to other sectors and other and, and other indices. Yeah, to me it was it, it was interesting. You know that you know you think about like momentum and it, it sort of one of those like quote unquote standard factors. But it, it's sort of interesting when Kara talked about how like the largest momentum fund in the market today. Uh, only actually rebounds twice a year when the, the research talks about doing it monthly. Uh, and so it's sort of interesting that you've got this combination of those facets. Uh, any other commentary, Randy, on when you think about where those momentum funds are going towards value, uh, loading up there as, as sort of just that twice a year rebounds? Any commentary from you there? Well, I, I would say one thing that's different about this index is that there is a fundamental component with the data graph ranking. So it's not going to rotate into 
stocks that have good relative strength but no growth. So in terms of investors, it's definitely a growth-orientated index and, res- and, and then respectively a wisdom tree product. Uh, it's not going to just buy, uh, you know, let's say, let's say lumber companies if there's no earnings growth there. It's not just, it's not solely on technicals. There is a fundamental component because again, we really think you get your best returns in companies that have superior relative earnings and sales growth, but also are in technical uptrends and are not overly extended. That's kind of the four elements of the of the of the recipe for a for a good investment meal. Very interesting uh, tour around this new index and and the fund. As you think about other things, O'Neill, maybe talk a little bit from the organization perspective, things that that the the group is focused on. Uh, You guys have a big research business as well. Any other things you want to highlight about the O'Neill family and and other things that your group is doing? I think think the other things we're focused on is, you know, we're very focused in China and India. Those are both big markets. They're both big economies. You know, India in particular, I'm very enthusiastic about long term. Uh, a lot of those, a lot of, a lot of the citizens of those countries have rising per capita incomes, and they're just starting to get into the investment world. And so I think there's going to be great opportunities for investors to invest in both of those markets, particularly, particularly India, with the number of consumers and the amount of growth they have over there. And we've found that a lot of the common technical uh, Factors that we use domestically also work overseas, so that's an area I think is I think is very interesting. Uh, I, w- I would say the other points are just the kind of the points made at the top of the top of the show, which is I do think stocks are still going to be the place to be with negative real rates. I think people are looking for things that can handle a more inflationary environment, and I think you're seeing that in in real estate purchases, as as Professor Siegel talked about, and you're seeing it in equities. Because while uh, there could be some pressure on stock valuations, in a little bit more inflationary environment, earnings growth should actually be better. So I think the earnings growth for U.S. stocks is going to help offset some of that multiple erosion that is probably going to happen as inflation picks up. And so I think it's a much better bet than fixed income, which obviously doesn't readjust. So I think, I think stocks are going to remain popular as long as the U.S. economy continues to grow and as long as the Fed and the U.S. government re- remain accommodative. And the Fed has kind of told you they're going to stay that way for an extended period of time. So I still think stocks are one of the best places for, for the individual to invest. Do, do you buy into any of this narrative that the rate that, that, that these growth stocks are these, these long-duration assets that get hit with rising rates? Do you think that's one of the risk factors here, that rates start rising? And, and should, it, should they be tied to these rising rate phenomena? Stocks are much, growth stocks are very long duration assets. So as rates move up, the multiple shrinks. And that's been something that's been very well researched and and, and categorized over the years. So then you need sort of a couple things. You need earnings to be able to grow faster than the erosion of the price earnings multiple. I think where we are in the global economic cycle, that, that can occur. I think the second thing that touches on, though, is that when stocks get to very extreme valuations and get very extended technically, there's huge downside. 
So oftentimes in very popular growth stocks, when they get overbought, as I mentioned earlier on the show, they can correct 20 to 50 percent. So, you know, with the index, you want to be very cognizant of not owning those stocks. And people should be cognizant of that when they own a stock that gets to a, you know, absurd valuation. Now, most of the leadership stocks in the market are not at absurd valuations. They're not trading at, you know, 150 times. If you look at the leadership tech stocks, the valuations are nowhere near what they were back in the tech bubble in that 2000, 2001 period. But that is something to, to keep in mind. It is possible for those kind of stocks to correct, but for the overall market to, to, to be okay. Oftentimes what happens in a good bull market is that the leadership of the market changes over time. We had those kind of stay-at-home stocks lead last year. Then we had value in cyclicals, basic materials, energy lead this year. Recently, investors are getting a little bit more cautious on what the forward growth rate is for the U.S. economy over the next couple of years. They've taken down their expectations a little bit, and that's allowed some of these growth stocks to poke their head up and begin to reassert themselves. we got to wrap, Randy. Thank you. Because we talked about the Wisdom Tree U.S. Growth and Momentum Fund, ticker WGRO, I need to read a quick disclosure. There are risks associated with investing, including possible loss of principal. The fund invests in mid and large capitalization companies that provide exposure to a portfolio of high growth momentum U.S. exchange listed companies. Securities that exhibit momentum characteristics may be more volatile than the market as a whole. Growth stocks as a group may be out of favor with the market, unperformed value stocks, or the overall equity market. The fund may experience high portfolio turnover in connection with rebalancing or adjustment of its index. The fund invests in the securities included in or representative of its index regardless of their investment merit. The fund does not attempt to outperform its index or take defensive positions in declining markets, and the index may not perform as intended. Please read the fund's prospectus for specific details regarding the fund's risk profile. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risk charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. To obtain a prospectus containing this and other important information, please call 866-909-9473 or visit wisdomtree.com to view or download a prospectus. Investors should read this prospectus for specific details regarding the fund risk profile carefully before investing. We've been listening to Behind the Markets Business Radio, Circum 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.